Before we start the show, I'd like to remind you that I host another podcast. It's called The Show About Politics and History. And if you are an NPR listener, or if your parents are NPR listeners, then you will absolutely recognize my latest guest. My name is Nina Totenberg. I'm the legal affairs correspondent for National Public Radio. I have been covering the Supreme Court for many, many decades. Nina and I had a great conversation. We talked all about the Supreme Court, and she told me about the first time she met Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Listen to the show about politics and history wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show about science. This is your host, Nate. Today, we're visiting Washington, D.C. to go behind the scenes at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, where we'll learn about how their scientists are working to preserve life on Earth. So, that is the main entrance of the museum. That is the famous elephant, Henry the Elephant, that greets you as you come in. And those are all of the exhibits. Henry the Elephant and all of those exhibits make up only 30% of the museum's entire collection. But behind this door is the other 70%. So we've just entered a hallway filled with cabinets containing some of the, wait for it, 145 million specimens the museum has collected over the years. You see all these cabinets, they're full of collections, mostly dry storage. Um, We have a lot of wet collections, what we call any specimen in alcohol, um, and that's preserved um, both so that preserves their morphology, but also their DNA gets preserved as well. So here's my favorite mammal specimen. Yes. Because it's adorable. That is very adorable. <laughs> it looks like a beaver with its teeth and from the front, except it's a porcupine. Yes, so they have quills. You can kind of yes, see them. Yes, they have quills. I forgot what those were called. Yeah. As cute and adorable as the porcupine was, we're not here to look at him or any of the other specimens in this hallway. We're here to learn about a new collection that the museum is working on, which catalogs the DNA of all life on Earth. So what people usually refer to, you know, is 21st century museum science, right? And, and what that really means is just preserving organisms the same way that we've always preserved them, but sort of ensuring that we can look at their genetic makeup the way that we're doing for humans all the time. And the reason we're really looking at genomes is to figure out what the tree of life says, what the diversity of life on Earth is. This is our guest, Vanessa Gonzalez. She's a computational genomic scientist at the Smithsonian Institute's Global Genome Initiative. That's just a fancy way of saying that I study the interaction of organisms on the planet, um, their genes and their full genomes, and how they're all related to each other, and I use computers to do that. How can you study their full genomes using the computers? That's a really interesting question. So we use the computers to figure out how their genomes are 
organized, right, or arranged. So have you heard of the Human Genome Project? I think I might have. Yeah, yeah so the Human Genome Project started a long time ago, and it took I think $3 billion to assemble the human genome, and it took decades, and now we know what our genomes as humans look like. So what we aim to do here is to figure out what genomes look like from non-humans. So anything that is plant, animal, insect, everything that's alive has a genome. So what we use computers to do is figure out what the underlying sequence is. So DNA has four nucleotides, A, G, T, and C. So those are the building blocks of DNA. And those are all arranged in many different patterns that make up a full genome. But because we can only read small pieces and we can't, you know, computationally, it's too hard to arrange them piece by piece, we use an algorithm to figure out what that full sequence is. So how much can a full strand of DNA, like, contribute to... Um the person overall. Yeah, so your entire genome contributes to the way you look, right? So mm -hmm. every single bit of your genome, depending on who you ask, um, is contributing to the way that you function, the way that you move, all of your cellular processes. And what we're interested in is maybe not so much the idiosyncrasies of those DNA sequences, but the genes that those DNA sequences code for and what those genes allow the organisms to do, right? So if an organism lives really, really deep, um, and they live in a place with little to no oxygen, right? So in the deep sea, there might not be that much oxygen. There could be genes in their genome that are allowing for that to happen, right? And so I specifically study mollusks. Mollusks are a group of organisms like bivalves or clams, mussels, oysters, octopus. People really like octopus. Those are cephalopods. Um, and there's eight different groups of those. And so I'm really interested in how these organisms, specifically these bivalves, live in the really, really deep oceans and what their genes um, allow them to do to compensate for living in these sort of extreme environments. But the underlying reason we're looking at that is we're trying to figure out how that specific organism is related to all other organisms, and in this case, how that specific bivalve is related to all other bivalves, and bigger than that, all other mollusks, right? So we're really interested in um, trying to figure out what the tree of life is, right? Have you heard of the tree of life? I think I have. Yeah, so the tree of life just hopes to sort of distinguish and designate all the different organisms and how they're related to each other based on many different types of evidence. It could be the way they look, or what we call that as a morphology. It could be what their genes and genomes say, so that's genetics. And it could also be their fossil records, you know, so looking at the different emergences um, and uh, acquisition of fossils. All right, so I think that I heard that there were different levels for each species, like there was species then genus and like I don't really know the rest but I just knew species and genus on the like pyramid I think it is yeah. so um if we folk let me think of an animal really quick mm -hmm. if we focus on a hummingbird what would it be like right so 
Unfortunately for me, I don't study many hummingbirds. Okay. But um, so the pyramid you're talking about is what we refer to as the Linnaean classification system. Linnaeus proposed this in the 1700s or 18th century sometime. And it is a way of ordering all organisms, right? Mm. And so there's a mnemonic device to remember that order. And it's King Philip came over for a great stake. And so that stands for kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Uh-huh. And so each of those ranks just hopes to organize all life in different okay. groups, right? So we like to group things naturally. So, you know, there's a photo of a gorilla behind you, right? And so that gorilla um, is a mammal, just as we are. We are also in mammalia or mammals, right? So we all have spines, so we're, you know, we're chordates. But the bigger group of that is we're all animals, so that's called metazoa. And so my specific research is figuring out, you know, within metazoa how all those organisms are related. And, you know, what I'm really honing in on here is studying what their genetic makeup is and what those genes um, allow us to interpret about that relatedness, but also how that leads to evolutionary adaptations for whatever it be, how they live their lives, where they live, um, uh, sort of the environments that they um, encompass or live in. What is the Global Genome Initiative? It's a great question. So the initiative I work for is a Global Genome Initiative. It's a five-year initiative whose collective vision is to preserve and understand the genomic diversity of life. So there's two aspects, right? So the preserving and the understanding. Um, The preserving part is to preserve genome grade, so in the future or now be able to extract the whole genome sequence from whatever organism. the sort of first step, remember we talked about that taxonomic rank, we talked about genus and species, and we have families, right? So to preserve one organism from every family of life on Earth. And there's about 5,000-ish or so families, and GGI's five-year initiative, we're about halfway through, and we have a little over half of the organisms uh, preserved now based on families in what we call genome-grade preservation. And genome-grade oh. preservation involves biorepositories, which are cold storage, to preserve this genetic material. Have you seen movies like Jurassic Park? No. Okay. Um, Have you ever seen a a liquid nitrogen tank? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of very, like, specific famous scenes, um, one in Jurassic Park, where one of the characters is pulling out uh, vials that are stored in this very cold storage. There's a lot of smoke, a lot of Um, I don't know how to describe it, but a lot of show. And so he pulls it out, and he's basically getting a vial of cells so then he could steal dinosaurs' genetics and make new dinosaurs. That's the premise, uh, the beginning of Jurassic Park. There's one thing the history of evolution has taught us. It's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. So speaking of the guy taking the vials that creating new dinosaurs. Can you um, use your vials to create new life? Currently, we cannot. Um, we are mm-hmm. st- 
preserving organisms uh, for just their DNA, and we're not really preserving live cells. Um, depending on who you ask, it may or may not be feasible to create new life from these stored vials, but we currently cannot. Okay. But in the future, all of these materials are available for worldwide use from other scientists, right? So they can request that material and study the genome. Or, you know, genome sequencing keeps changing. There's new technologies. It's also getting remarkably cheaper. Where the Human Genome Project took $3 billion and a decade or so to do, now we do human genomes in 24 hours for under $100, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we can use that increase in technology to then target all of these genomes in the future. And then Mm -hmm. the other half, right, so it's preserving and understanding. The Mm -hmm. understanding half is sort of what I'm doing here. We're really trying to understand how those genomes um, are organized and what they say about the specific organism. And so my job here is really to facilitate the understanding of this genomic diversity of life. And the facilitation, you know, uses computers. It uses, you know, going out to the field and collecting new specimens to then put in the biorepository, then using those same specimens and figuring out what the best way is of not only assembling the genome, but getting that genetic material out of that uh, specific organism. All right. So do you have any advice for kids who want to maybe go into um the Global Genome Initiative or just genetics in general? Yeah, um, genetics is a tool, but really studying the organism is, is what sort of natural historians want to do, right? So here we're all natural historians. We really want to understand not only the animal itself, its environment interactions with the ecosystem, and how that organism evolved to be how it is now. And so because we're using genetics as a tool, I think my advice is, you know, if you're really interested in organismal biology or looking at organisms, just pursue and be open to any which way you can look at those specific organisms. A big thank you to Vanessa and everyone at the Smithsonian for making this interview possible. Music on this episode was written by Sound of Picture and Breakmaster Cylinder. And our theme music was composed by Jeff Dan and Teresa Brooks. There you have it, folks. The show about science is complete. Dad, you can shut the recording off.